Exodus 19, verses 10 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people. And I'm reading from the ESV. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of the mountain. For whoever touches the mountain shall be what? Put to death. These are great verses to read this morning. Very encouraging. (laughs) No hand shall touch him, meaning touch the guy who touched the mountain. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. I think the King James says shot through with an arrow, right? A little graphic verse here. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Meaning they shall come up, the Hebrews will come up to the mountain and stand. I want to ask you a question this morning. What does biblical sanctification mean? What does the Bible define sanctification as? How do you think the Hebrews felt at that moment when this mountain was smoking with fire? No beast could touch it. Maybe some beasts, they could see the beasts that were already the dead carcasses already on the mountain. And the blast of the trumpet and the frightening sound and the the shaking of the mountain. How do you think that these Hebrews felt when they were standing there? How would you feel? I'd be, I'd fear two things. I'd fear a lot of things. I'd feel a lot of things. Not only would I fear, what I would feel, fear, but I think, number one, I'd feel shame. Shame. Like no intimacy with this mountain or this God on this mountain. Like, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I think the second thing I would feel is isolation. Be looking on the outside of the borders. Looking from the outside of the borders to the inside. Like, like God would be on the other side saying, what are you looking at? You don't belong here. And we see, I have a little video here I want to show you. And it's a 30-second commercial that I saw recently. And I thought, I saw this, and I saw it a few times, and I thought, man, does this do such a great job of describing this sense of shame and isolation. Okay? Go ahead. picture of how people can feel like first class is there so you don't so that you remember that you are not in first class I think that 
this video here, this guy's face shows the isolation and shame that he wanted to belong, but he didn't have what it took to be there. There's a difference between guilt and shame, and I want to talk a little bit about this this morning. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is more about the wrong that has been done. Shame is more about who I am, feeling that there is something wrong with me. Let me say that again. Shame is more about who I am, the feeling that there is something wrong with me. And there is something wrong with us, and we see it every day. We feel every time we are around people, we feel this hidden shame, don't we? This can happen to us. For in shame, we are looking for covering, covering ourselves to hide the sense of shame. Like Adam and Eve, we, feel, we fear this nakedness or exposure that we're going to be found out by an angry God, so we feel we need to protect ourselves against rejection. And so we, like Adam and Eve, we put on fig leaves. These fig leaves are temporary and they fall off. And so when we fear, what do we do? We, we seek for control. Adam tries to control his environment by hiding in it and covering himself in his environment. And this is human nature. That's everyone of us here, that we hide in the very environment. We hide in the very environment that we were meant to rule over. This environment could be an environment of of career or fashion or business or belongings. We hide amidst these things. And so this fear causes a lot of havoc in the soul. It creates damage. It destroys the soul, doesn't it? The shame creates fear and it destroys the soul. And so this is what Moses tells the, the Hebrews to do. Moses says, go take your clothes, clean your clothes, and put your house in order. But the problem here is with the Hebrews is that there is no cleanliness in their soul and there's no cleanliness in their minds. And they know it. And they feel this. And this causes a lot of tension inside of them because it's something that they can't really talk about as they're standing there before this Mount Sinai. And what happens here is, is that Moses is focusing on, he says, set yourselves apart for three days, wash your clothes, clean your house, get everything in order, because when that trumpet blast sounds, you're going to be called forward to stand in front of this, of this God who's going to be speaking to you, this God that they didn't even know. And so what happens is that there's a sphere that develops in their heart, and I think it creates some kind of a spiritual OCD, because what's happening is that they're cleaning everything up, but inside there's this shame and there's this fear and there's this brokenness. My mom had OCD, and it was undiagnosed. God healed her of it later on when she started to learn the grace message and the finished work. But she had it because she was, as a young girl, she was rejected by her dad. Uh, he, would, and he was an alcoholic, and this created such tension and such destruction in her soul that she felt like that her world was out of control growing up as a kid. And so her way with coping with this situation was just to clean, was just to be clean, just to make everything so organized and so under control that she could feel like that she could control this environment so that she would never ever feel like that she was out of control and that she would never ever experience this rejection. She did this because she felt rejection and she didn't want to feel that rejection anymore because of the shame. And the fear of failure is really the fear of shame, isn't it? 
fear of failure is just the fear of failure is really standing there knowing and everybody else knowing that you blew it and that you didn't do you didn't do a good job and now you feel the shame and so her way of dealing with this was just cleaning all the time just this just incredible control of everything and when everything was under control when everything was clean and that everything was great she was very lonely and she was sitting there by herself and I remember times of her just sitting there and like no friends really because she was in this place where she she couldn't have messy relationships she, she couldn't have people around her that were that were sinners saved by grace and that drove her to the cross and that drove her to Christ and I want to talk about that in a second this is what happens and this is what was happening to the Hebrews they were there they were experiencing this rejection from this God that had just called them out of Egypt. They felt rejected. They felt like that they could have no intimacy with this God on this mountain, that no one could touch that mountain unless they die. This mountain of shame is where a lot of unsaved and saved people today camp out. You know that? There's people. I grew up in a, I grew up in a church where in the beginning there was really no finished work teaching. And there was, that, was, that was a mountain of Sinai for me. And a lot of people there camp out and they're living there. They feel isolated from God. And the result is two things. It could be one of two things. Anger and lashing out or withdrawing inwardly because of the rejection. And what happens in the end? They say, I can't do this Christianity thing. I can't do this. Who can do this anyway? And they walk away. Or the other reaction is conformity. I will conform so that I can be accepted because I do not want to be going to church or around Christians or other people where I'm rejected, where I feel rejected. And so I learned the vocabulary. I learned the pray, whatever, that, whatever the, the slogans are of that church, and I do that so that I can feel accepted. And this creates a very, very damaging culture. This creates a culture that exists in churches today where there's no intimacy There's no genuineness and there's no fellowship. There's no authenticity. It's just a culture of performance and it's a culture of unspoken segregation. Do you know what I mean by that? Clicks. You're not part of that group. You're not part of the holy crowd or you're not part of this crowd or that crowd. And this is the process of shame, the way it happens. And it goes, it's like six steps. Number one, I did something wrong, so I feel guilt. I did something wrong, so I feel guilt. Number two, there is something wrong with me, and that's shame. That's shame. Number three, I don't belong here with these people. What is that? That's isolation. Number four, I'm experiencing rejection right now in this situation, in this church, or in this circumstance, or with these people, and it hurts, and it's causing fear in my soul and number five so this process of shame produces a kind of sanctification that's not biblical and sanctification in Christianity becomes a process of what Moses said wash my clothes and clean house so I don't look dirty and what is that called that's called control you know what every one of us have that here every one of us have in some way or another because we're fallen creatures of spiritual OCD where we are trying to control our environment so that we don't feel rejected. And number six, what does that create? What does that create in our lives? And by the way, this could be in your life, in my life, and we don't even see it. It's called a blind spot. What, what does this create? Step number six, we begin to be judgmental. We look at other people and say, why can't you get your, why can't you get your act together? 
clean yourself up. You're a mess, right? You ever think that way? I have. I thought that about people. I'll just tell you that. I mean, I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace. There are times when thoughts come into my mind like, what is wrong with that person? Why can't they get their act together? <laughs> Why can't they just believe this? Or can't they just get out of that situation? Or they continue falling. They continue failing in this area of their life. And this frustration comes in. And we find ourselves at that mountain thinking that we've qualified in some way and we haven't because we got clean clothes and somebody else doesn't have as clean clothes as I do. But the thing is, is that we're all in the same boat. We are on the other side of that boundary, outside of fellowship with God. So if our Christianity is living at Mount Sinai, it's a lot like paying taxes. I was thinking about this this week. Had some interest, I had some interesting tax situations going on this year because we moved and everything like that. And, and so um, our, our taxes got, got dealt with finally. I just remember going through the tax documents. I'm sure you've done it like this. And you're going through, you're counting every penny, aren't you? You're just going through everything like this. I got to make sure I get this deduction and I got to get that. And, and at the end, there's this big number, right? Hopefully not, but sometimes there's this big number. And it's like, okay, and we pay that. And then at the end, I remember on the one tax document, it said, would you like to donate a dollar to charity? I'm like, no way. I'm not <laughs> donating anything to this, to this government because the government's getting, I'm only going to give this government as much money as they require for me. And this is what life at Mount Sinai is like. It's like, don't ask me to pay any or give anything more that is really, that I owe. Because... I'm giving my tithe, I'm going to church on Sunday, I'm wearing my clean clothes on Sunday. And I am so exhausted from doing all of this, trying to keep my life into control, that if you ask me to do one more thing that costs a dollar, no way, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to have a missions vision, I'm not going to have any desire to go to midweek service, I'm not going to have any desire for Bible school or a vision for my neighbors. Why? Because I'm so exhausted from living this life of whatever I'm trying to live keeping my clothes clean. So friends, this is the state of modern Christianity, isn't it? This is the state of many churches today. And I just want to say, I, just, I, I read through this, I was thinking about this, and I was just thinking, no wonder no one wants to get saved. <laughs> no, wonder wants to, no, no wonder no one wants to come to church and get rooted in a church. No wonder no one wants to get involved because... That's a scary mountain. I remember growing up as a teenager, not saved probably, young teenager. Maybe I was saved. I, I think I got saved, but I, I didn't know anything about my salvation. I was walking, I'd walk to school, and I always walked by this one big church. It was not a big church, but it was kind of like a traditional-looking church. White doors, steeple. Uh, beautiful. It was field stone. It was a beautiful church. And I'd walk by, and I just remember it was next to a laundromat and somebody else's house. I just remember looking at that place and thinking, I have no desire to ever go to that place. Why would I ever want to go there? What is in that place? I mean, it's just, who goes there? What is that place? There's no activity there. There's nothing happening. And there's nothing in me that would ever want to go to that place. And this is the way people are thinking about their Christianity. And it could be that I'm a churchgoer and this is happening. And it's happening because I'm at the wrong mountain. I'm fellowshipping at the fellowshipping at the wrong mountain in my Christianity. I want to ask us a question today. Are we there? Is that where we're at in our personal lives? Is an area of my life that I'm at Mount Sinai and I'm just experiencing so much shame and I'm experiencing so much condemnation. 
Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 24 for some answers. Okay? Let's just go there and read these verses. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. Wow. Isn't that wild? I mean, these people, I mean, we see later on in that chapter, in Exodus chapter 19, the people, the Hebrews were like, Moses, you talk to us. We don't want to talk to that guy that's on the top of the mountain that's burning everything up that gets so close to it. And they're begging Moses, do not give us any more messages. You ever hear that? Like, I don't want to go to that church. I don't want to hear those messages. I beg of you, don't take me there. And this is what's happening. They beg him, to, they, beg, they beg Moses that no further messages be spoken to them. That is a troubled church right there. Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. They could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Imagine being part of that crew. Oh my gosh, that, that deer just inadvertently walked on, on the mountain. Go catch it. We had, they had to go get the, the deer, drag it out, and then the Hebrews had to gather together and stone that deer to death. I mean, what a process. What an incredibly traumatic experience. Indeed, in verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, Moses said himself, I tremble with fear. And yes, God is an awesome God. He's a God that is mighty and powerful. And he can, with just, with a, with a blink of an eye, the, the universe can be created or destroyed. God is so powerful. And yet Moses is saying, I myself, the messenger, am trembling with fear. Look at verse 22. I like, I like when the word but comes into the picture. Don't you like that? This is a word of redemption. This is a paradigm shift. This is, but this is not the end of the story. All right? But God. It says here, you, and there's eight things, and I love this. I'm just going to look at these with you this morning. But, and we could just like, if we were writing in our Bibles, we could put an exclamation point there and capital letters in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Sion. What is Mount Sion? This is the other mountain. This is the second mountain. This is not the mountain where Moses is camping out with the Hebrews that have no connection with God. This is Mount Sion. Mount Sion in the Bible speaks of the body of Christ. Us here, you and I, this place this morning. This is Mount Zion. This is Zion right here. Number two, and the city of the living God. A living community, not a dead community, a living community. God's making us alive. We come together here, and, and, um, and we are a living community of people that God is building. People that are living and lively, and, and there's joy, and there's expectation. And this is a community of life. It's not a community of death, as the Mount Sinai was. The third thing, the heavenly Jerusalem. I love this, because the Jerusalem that we are that we are a part of is not a Jerusalem that's bound by earthly corruption. There's so much corruption in this world, isn't it? But if you look at Jerusalem, and you could look at it maybe as an upside-down city that's plugged into heaven, 
Our roots are in heaven. They're not roots that are in this earth. We are called to this heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable angels in festal gathering. Verse 22, I love this. Innumerable angels in festal gathering. What does festal gathering look like? I think it was when we won the World Series. I know Marcus is here from Los Angeles. We don't want to be easy, easy on him. But I, I, I remember watching that game, and, and it's like, and then, and um, I don't remember who was the first baseman who caught the last, the, caught the last out. What was his name? First baseman for the Astros. Was it Altuna? I mean, he like he caught, he caught the ball. He grabbed his head and he jumped up in the air. I thought that, and then the, the whole team gathered by the pitcher's mound and they started jumping up and down. I thought, why do people jump when they're excited? Because I think we were made to fly. And when we're jumping, we want to be air. When we're excited and happy, we want to be airborne, don't we? Yeah. And this is why we jump. This is when we have victory and, and joy and, and a festal gathering, we're jumping. You know, the angels are flying around, and we're just jumping because of you know, we're jumping because of the gravitational pull. And I thought, this is a festal gathering. This is what heaven's going to be like. We're going to be jumping all of eternity. We're going to be so excited to be there. We're going to be, and when we stop jumping, we're going to walk around. We're going to realize, wow, I'm in heaven. We're going to start jumping again. Festal gathering. Verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, belonging. I love that, belonging. We are belonging. We belong to something. We belong to a spiritual tribe. And to God, the judge of all. I was thinking about this last yesterday and this morning. The God, the judge of all. How many people are out there that are oppressed? How many orphans are out there today that have, no, that have no avenger in their life? How many people out there have been wronged so many, so many times? How many times have we been wronged in this room? So many times. We have an avenger, and he's the God, the judge of all. And if you've been unjustly treated in your life, take joy in this, that there's going to be a judge in heaven at the bema seat of the believer that he's going to judge in your favor, and he's going to avenge you and I. Praise the Lord. Amen. Yes. It's okay if we're suffering injustice. Because there's an, we have a God who is the avenger. And to the spirits of righteous made perfect. I love that. Because we're going to be up in heaven. And we're going to be a sinner saved by grace among other sinners saved by grace. That going to be great. We're going to look at Eduardo and say, you know, I'm just like him. A sinner saved by grace. <laughs> we're going to look at each other. We're going to look at people here. We're going to say, you know, what? I'm a sinner saved by grace. And this is so great because... Because somehow, I don't know how it's going to be. All the tears and, and pain will be wiped away. I don't think we're going to remember sin. But I think we're going to remember that, that we don't belong here except for the gift of the grace of God in Ephesians 2, 7, and 8. We're going to be like, it's all grace that I'm here, that I belong. Spirits of righteous men made perfect. In verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. This is what we're called to. We're called to this mountain, Mount Sinai, where Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and he is our advocate. Do you ever need a Do you ever need a lawyer? Do you ever call a lawyer up, and you're like, I have, I, my wife and I, we were hit from behind, and we were like, what are we going to do? We owe us all this money. My wife's got to go to the hospital for whiplash and all these, and, you know, these injuries. And, and we were just, you know, the bills were starting to pile up. And I remember calling, an, I remember calling a lawyer, and he goes, "You got a great case here." We're going, to get you, we're going to get you some reimbursement. I just felt, wow, what a great feeling. I wish all lawyers were like that. This was a great feeling. Jesus comes to our aids. And number eight, we're called to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word 
than the blood of Abel. What's the blood of Abel saying today? What's the blood of Abel saying today? What do you think it's saying today? Abel's blood was spilt because of what? Injustice. Murder. I've been murdered. And this blood spilt into the ground. And this blood was shed, but it's crying out for vengeance, right? God, avenge me. Avenge me. This blood is crying out. And how much blood today is crying out for avengement? Jesus' blood. He, too, was unjustly killed. He, too, was unjustly um, accused. He, too, was unjustly set up by seven major laws were broken in Jewish in Jewish culture. And he was unjustly, unjustly accused. And he was murdered and killed on the cross. Unjustly. But what does his blood say today to you and I? When we look at that blood, and I, I haven't murdered somebody, but I would imagine if somebody's killed somebody and they see the blood, I'm sure that their conscience is extremely guilty at that point. I, I, you know, Chris Johnson right now is um, ministering in a, in, in a jail somewhere, and he's just ministering to these guys who are in jail. And uh, pray for him as he's there this weekend. The Purify guy, the coffee maker, preaching, preaching forgiveness, speaking forgiveness to these, to these, um, these guys in jail. And when we look at that blood, you know, that blood that was shed, we would want to turn away and say, oh, I, I was guilty of killing Christ. If Jesus was alive today, I'm sure that I would be part of the crowd murdering Jesus. I'm sure nothing would be different. And we look at that blood and say, you know something, I'm guilty. I'm separated. But you know what that blood says today? It says forgiven. It's not beautiful. It says forgiven. It's okay. You knew, not, knew, you, knew not, you knew not what you were doing. Forgive them, Father, for they knew not what they were doing. You're forgiven. And this is what we've been called to. This is the mountain that we've been called to. This is the mountain. What's this mountain of Zion? It's the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace. What is this mountain? The gospel of grace story goes like this. And I was thinking about this. And I have, I like, in my mind, I think I have like a, a movie type of mind where I'm seeing, I, I love writing stories and love seeing scenes and choreography. There we go. Can't even speak English today. When the Hebrews were standing there at attention at this scary mountain with fire and a blaring trumpet. I mean, a blaring trumpet. Imagine a trumpet blaring as long as you can imagine. It's just blaring with smoke rising. And they were trembling in fear. But their clothes were clean. But they had dirty hearts of shame. And suddenly they're standing there and they're wondering what's going to happen next. And suddenly a man comes out from their midst. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And he marches through the barrier up onto Mount Sinai. And just as the law commanded, he had to be put to death. He had to be put to death because he touched the holy mountain. And you know what? He was. And as a spectacle for all of Israel and for the whole world to see, Jesus is crucified on a mountain. He is crucified on a hill. And, he, and he's, as he is there being crucified and dying, three days later, what happens? The unexpected happens. He rises from the dead. How many animals do you think that touched Mount Sinai rose from the dead on the third day? How many people do you think that touched Mount Sinai rose on the third day? Nobody ever did. And yet Jesus rises on the third day. And guess what he did? He became the avenger, our avenger, and turned our mountain of fear and shame into a mountain of joy 
an incredible body life. That is where you and I today are called to, amen? That is where we are today. This is the invitation from God to call us into this fellowship of community, of belonging, of forgiveness, of joy and fest, and innumerable angels in, in festivities. I want to conclude with this. I heard a story recently of a Catholic woman who was hearing the gospel of grace for the first time. And as she's listening to the gospel of grace, she gets a little scared and she gets a little worried. And she says to the preacher, she says, she said, I'd rather, I'd rather my gospel of works in the Catholic church because in my gospel of works, I can control what I'm doing. And there's not much more that can be asked of me than the work that I'm asked to do for my salvation. And she said that the gospel of grace really scares me because the gospel of grace is not asking me for something. What it's saying is, is that when I'm saved by grace, there's no limit to what can be asked of me. I owe everything. And that's the difference between the gospel message of grace and the Old Testament living at Mount Sinai. That when you and I are saved by grace, God's not saying, do this, do this, do this, and you'll be righteous. God says, give me everything. Give me everything. Your car, your house, your friends, your people, everything. Give me your life. Give me your, your very physical body in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And this is, going, this is bringing us to answer the question that I asked at the beginning of the message. Sanctification is no longer my self-improvement by cleaning clothes and having a clean house like the Hebrews had to do. Nor is it performance because of shame and fear. Because when we cover ourselves with the fig leaves like Adam did, which is pride and control, listen to this, we are covering the very person that needs the love and the gospel grace of God. Amen? The answer here is, Sanctification, and this is the answer, and I'm going to close with this, is the yielding to the work of the cross and the spirit that enables us to work out our own salvation. It, this is healing from all the shame. This is the renewing of the mind. It's the healing of the soul. It's the transformation of our, of our inner engine. And so now when we when we labor and when, we're, when we are exerting energy, it's no longer me trying to perform and make myself acceptable to God. It just means I come to God as I am, just as I am. I love that song. I know it's an old hymn, and I love some of these old hymns. Just as I am without one plea, meaning I have no plea. I have no, I have no excuse. Guilty as charged, God. I come as I am. And the, re- the second and third verses of that, of, that, of that hymn are so powerful. And then the Spirit comes in, the Spirit of grace, and He heals us. You know what our labor today is in the book of Hebrews chapter 4? It says labor, exert energy, work on this. The thing that you've got to work on is this, to enter into faith rest. Labor to rest. Labor to rest, you know, labor to work at getting yourself to that place where you are exercising faith rest at Mount Zion. And this is the labor of sanctification. This is the yielding in Romans chapter 6 where we yield to the Holy Spirit 
and we're yielding to the work that he's done already on the cross. I think some of us sometimes fight battles that Jesus, that Jesus fought and defeated and won 2,000 years ago. The devil wants to get you and I into fighting our flesh and the energy of the flesh. And that is not sanctification. Sanctification is, God, here I am without one plea. Forgive me. I am in Christ. And I want to rest in that right now. And not bow to the, the, the impulse to clean something up. Sometimes when we fail, or when other people fail, we want to we want to we want to clean up crew, don't we? Who's going to clean up that mess? We teach our kids right from the beginning, hey, clean up your mess, and that's human responsibility. But in the in the kingdom of God, we can't take human systems into the kingdom of God. Amen. We can't take human thinking into the kingdom of God. We can't take Adam's curse in the garden that by the sweat of your brow and by the labor of your hands you will produce fruit. That doesn't work in the kingdom of God. It just creates shame and it creates isolation. And the more that you and I work on our salvation, the more we find ourselves standing outside in the rain. Because a man came out from our midst. He was a man. He was the God-man, Jesus Christ. Climbed that mountain, was crucified for our sins. Shed his blood. And now that mountain is no longer a place of fear. We can draw near. And this is the message that I think that we need to bring out to people this week. You know, as soon as we walk out that door, I'd love to get... One of these days, I'd like to get a sign over our, of our, of, over our door as, as you leave. You are now entering into the mission field. I'm sure you've seen that sign before. I like that. There was a church I visited not too long ago, and as I was driving out of their park, parking lot, there was a big sign that says, you are now entering into the field, the mission field. When we walk out those doors, we're in a mission field, at the gas station, at HEB, wherever we're at, at the kids' game, with our kids, our grandkids. We have a mission, and that mission is this. Come on in. You're forgiven, and there's no shame. I love this. Jesus despised the shame. There was no shame in Jesus' life, but he was, there was a lot of shame that was being projected on him, and he despised it. He said, that's not who I am. And we've got to face our shame and say, that's not who I am. I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. And just get loved up like that song that we sang this morning. I receive your reign, Lord, that reign of love, that, that reign of grace, that reign of the blood of Christ cl- sprinkling on our conscience that's cleaning us. And we are now clean because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.